Hello, and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Zachary Wheeler, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Franz Lucilia and Megan Rudkai. In May 2020, the Chinese Communist Party announced a sweeping new national security law over Hong Kong. The law, enacted in late June, ambiguously outlaws separatism, subversion, and terrorism, allowing China to limit the autonomy of Hong Kong's institutions and crack down on freedoms enjoyed by those in Hong Kong in an unprecedented manner. Those in Hong Kong went to sleep on June 28th with the rights they enjoyed their entire lives and woke up with the danger of losing them all. Joining us today on the podcast is Professor Ho Fung Hung. Ho Fung Hung is a professor of political economy at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. Dr. Hung's interests include global political economy, protest, and nation-state formation, with a focus on China and East Asia. Dr. Hung has previously taught at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, and his analyses of the Chinese political economy and Hong Kong politics have been featured or cited in the New York Times, the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, BBC News, the South China Morning Post, and the People's Daily, among other publications. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Thank you so much for joining us today. Professor Hong. My pleasure. To start us off, let's start with some context to the current situation in Hong Kong. When did we first start hearing about this new national security law for Hong Kong? Yeah, it is very sudden. Um, uh, Nobody expected it and nobody talked about it until uh, in in the middle of spring this year in March that there's some Chinese scholars uh, talk about it and people don't take it seriously because they think it is surreal and not going to happen. But then in the National People's Congress uh, in May that they really have that in the agenda and approve the uh, measure to uh, empower the National People's Congress Standing Committee to, to, to make the law. And then everybody at that point uh, in Hong Kong and around the world, including the U.S., know that it is serious and it is going to happen. And as you know, uh, it happened very quickly, and uh, and the, the law uh, was made and passed in uh, late uh, June, and and, and be- now is a reality um, in the beginning of early July. And um, what was the initial reaction to the law from the international media and the people of Hong Kong when it first was written? It was uh, the people were shocked, and uh, initially it is in d- disbelief, but. Uh, now everybody knows that it's a reality, so people uh, is more shocked and, and outraged because uh, uh, it is uh, like an official death certification of the one country, two system in, in Hong Kong uh, because when the UK and China signed the Sino-British Joint Declaration, which is uh, which has uh, international treaty status registered in the United Nations that uh, China promised to allow Hong Kong to govern its own um uh, with high degree of autonomy and and all legislations and and uh, even national security legislation is going to be taken care of by the local Hong Kong government and the Hong Kong uh, Legislative Council, uh, which is kind of uh, uh, elected body, um, not freely elected, but but there's some free election elements in it. Um, and uh, the way that they do this national security law this time is that they totally bypass the local government in Hong Kong, even though the, everybody knows that the Hong Kong local government uh, is a kind of, uh, some would say that it's a puppet, but uh, it is definitely heavily influenced by the Chinese government. Um, so to let the Hong Kong government do it is at least a pretension uh, of 
the Hong Kong autonomy, but now that they even bypass that, meaning that they even don't bother to to put up a pretension of autonomy to legislate in Beijing and impose on Hong Kong directly. Uh, so it is something that uh, spelled the end uh, of one country two system, and also the people would say the, it's end of freedom of speech and freedom of uh, opinion. In Hong Kong, because in the past, uh, the Hong Kong government has a lot of tools that they inherited from the colonial times, the British colonial times, um, to deal with uh, protests and gatherings and organizations. Uh, they can easily outlaw gatherings and protests and organizations with those laws, existing laws. Uh, but they don't have any tools to arrest people uh, for an article they write. Um, uh, some speech they made and, and some uh, association acquaintance with some people they might have. Uh, but now with this national security law, they, they, they basically outlaw certain speech and certain uh, opinion and certain associations uh, deemed as subversive to the Hong, Kong, uh, the Hong Kong and Chinese government. So it's a totally change of the environment. And Professor Hong, the, as you were briefly mentioning, the the relationship between China and Hong Kong in the past has been one that's been specially defined by the one country, two systems. Yep. And my question right now would be, what was the impetus the, behind the new national security law for Hong Kong? Why did China oh. decide to implement this and break decades old, a decades-old yes. framework in the one country, two systems? Yeah, definitely. China, it shows that China is really anxious and worried about Hong Kong. Uh, the, the one country, two system is not only a contract between China and people in Hong Kong, but also a contract between China and the world because uh, the, the United States and uh, uh, most other countries in the world uh, has their own law to say that if Hong Kong is sufficiently autonomous, then they will uh, maintain a lot of special trading and immigration privileges for Hong Kong, uh, separate Hong Kong from uh, mainland China, uh, and uh, so that Hong Kong can continue to perform its uh, perform its role as an offshore financial center of China, uh, and also gateway for capital moving into China and China moving into the world. So it is very useful for China. And then now China is taking the risk of destroying these uh, benefits of Hong Kong autonomy. Uh, by imposing this law, meaning that China is very anxious uh, about the Hong Kong situation. As we know that in 2019, there's a massive uh, protest that keep escalating uh, over the extradition law in Hong Kong. And uh, the protest itself doesn't worry Chinese government because, uh, uh, as I said, the Hong Kong government and Hong Kong police force has a lot of tools and means to, to control, uh, to stifle those protests. Um, as, as they have been doing uh, over last year uh, with increasingly brutal policing tactics and mass arrests of protesters, things like that. Uh, what worried the Chinese government is that, uh, that the Chinese government initially wait for public opinion backlash against the protests. That uh, many people expect that uh, because even in the peaceful occupation movement in 2014, toward the end of the movement, you see a uh, public opinion backlash and people, the ordinary citizens of Hong Kong get tired of them and, and and think that it is better to get back to the normal life and things like that. And uh, so the Chinese government and the Hong Kong government waited for this public opinion backlash uh, in 2019, but surprisingly, it never came. Uh, the public opinion pool and local election, particularly the district council election in November, showed that the ordinary people in Hong Kong are mostly 
solidly in support of the protester, even though the protests became more and more uh, disruptive and confrontational and even violent. Uh, so it shocked Beijing. It, it seems that the protest, despite its escalation, uh, has widespread sympathy among the Hong Kong people. Uh, and there is an upcoming Legislative Council election in September this year. Uh, so the, in spring of this year, the Chinese government official media started to have articles saying that uh, Hong Kong is on the verge of a color revolution and uh, the establishment uh, parties might lose the majority in the Legislative Council, uh, despite the fact that the electoral uh, rule is actually set up to 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 favor the establishment party, but they still worry about losing control of the legislative council and and, and other democratic landslide in the victory, so they think that it is serious. Um, so just controlling the protest is not enough. So they think that it is necessary to control opinions and control speech and control uh, more things uh, to make sure that uh, Hong Kong would not be lost like Taiwan. Um, that uh, that if it will be a nightmare to, from their perspective, if the legislative council election uh, generate a kind of a opposition majority uh, body a chamber, uh, and it will uh, uh, block many policy of the government and, and make uh, Hong Kong ungovernable and even uh, make Hong Kong uh, uh, moving towards what they think is independence. So it is uh, the the anxiety that drive them to take this drastic step very quickly uh, to impose this national security law. And I think that what they worry about is the upcoming election and the widespread sympathy among the population uh, for the protester last year. Professor, you spoke about this um, in, in your answer already a little bit on what the law actually means for Hong Kong, but could you expand on what the law actually says and, and why it's been seen as so significant in international media in government, which is the United States government, and for the people of Hong Kong? Yeah, uh, because, uh, as I said, that Hong Kong has been in an environment, even in the British colonial time, that uh, uh, even that uh, they, they, they can ban an organization, ban their gatherings, and, and, and arrest protesters, but they cannot arrest people for their speech and opinion, and the mere uh, acquaintance of some people uh, deemed subversive. Um, so meaning that Hong Kong is not a democracy, never is the, uh, a full democracy, but Hong Kong is a very free society and, and, and newspaper can say all kinds of things and offers and, and critics of the government can, can run around freely and say things freely. Uh, it was in the colonial time and it was in the, the Hong Kong the Special Administrative Region under China for, for more than 20 years. Uh, this national security law is radically change this environment to uh, make people uh, worry about what they say and what they write about. So it is the end of the freedom of speech. And, and uh, it is very important not only for dissidents, but also for Hong Kong's role as a financial center because uh, many companies have business in China, but they maintain their headquarters in Hong Kong. And many Chinese companies uh, uh, traded in Hong Kong Stock Exchange and a lot of international investors want to invest in Chinese companies. They would rather invest in uh, through the Hong Kong stock market because uh, Hong Kong is a financial center. And one uh, important thing uh, for Hong Kong to sustain this financial center role is the freedom of speech and freedom of information. So the newspaper and reporter and journalists and scholars can, can freely discuss and uh, talk about problems of Chinese company, for example, or corruptions 
or financial uh, fraud and, and, and money laundering and all these kind of things uh, involving uh, Chinese officials all the time, and they can talk about it. Uh, so that is a transparent market. And, and, and if there's a company that have, that have this kind of scandal or corruption charges and getting into this kind of trouble, then people immediately know about it, and then they can make an investment decision. So it is a kind of a situation that um, make Hong Kong uh, a financial center for China, a global financial center for China. And also Hong Kong, uh, despite uh, its uh, sovereignty handover to China, maintain its uh, common law tradition, uh, rule of law system. The court is uh, 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 quite independent. So if you sue a Chinese company, uh, the, um, uh, the judge um, or the juries will, will, will uh, make the judgment according to the law and, 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 and without uh, fear of... Uh, revenge or things like that. So it is a kind of a rule of law situation that uh, uh, mainland China doesn't have. So when uh, business people doing business with China, when they have a dispute with their China partner, for example, that they will uh, bring the case to the court in Hong Kong. Uh, sometimes they bring the case to the court in the US, for example, but 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 uh, uh, it is difficult to enforce the judgment, but in Hong Kong that they can. So they, they, they use Hong Kong as this kind of a, arbitration and uh, legal center as well. So it is all these infrastructures for financial center of Hong Kong hinge on the freedom of speech and freedom of information. Um, now this uh, national security law that dictated that uh, 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 people actually uh, can be transferred to mainland Chinese court uh, uh, if there's a case in which they think the government think that it involved Chinese national security. So it is the end of the rule of law of Hong Kong as well. Not only end of the freedom of information, so it is. It is uh, something that is shocking not only to people who are critical of the government, as that's the dissidents or activists, but also for business people and journalists uh, that they are nervous. So the, the the American Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong did a survey, and uh, among its member, uh, that is American business in Hong Kong, that majority of them are worried, and a significant uh, proportion of them, uh, more than. 30%, I think it is uh, 35% of them is uh, indicating that they already um, are planning to leave Hong Kong or, or possibly leave Hong Kong at least uh, in, as a reaction to the national security law. And we just read the news that the New York Times Hong Kong office is uh, starting to divert part of its operation to Seoul, Korea, uh, as a direct response to national security law. And the Deutsche Bank uh, is also announced that uh, they are going to move to the regional headquarters to Singapore. So, so this law is totally uh, changed the business environment in Hong Kong and, and, and environment for journalists. Uh, so uh, it is why people are very uh, upset and concerned about it. And Professor, something that was interesting to me is, is immediately after the law was passed, we saw news reports already of freedoms in Hong Kong being cracked down upon. So we saw a, um, I remember seeing the Hong Kong police force actually tweeting about arresting a man who was just waving a Hong Kong independence flag. So I think that was, that was particularly jarring to me, was just seeing how quickly they moved to implement this law. One other thing, Professor, um, what aspects of this law like, are very dangerous but potentially haven't been spoken a lot about in, in media? Not a lot of light has been shown upon them. Yeah, uh, the one particular dangerous and surprising thing, uh, actually already many, many journalists already find it out and it's widely reported, but uh, they haven't act on it, the government haven't act on it, that that is a surprising Article 38 of the law, 
saying that um, the law applied to law and Hong Kong residents who commit uh, crime according to the definition of the law outside of Hong Kong, meaning that it put uh, the whole world population under the jurisdiction of the law, basically. That the uh, uh, so law and Hong Kong law and Chinese resident, uh, if you do something deemed criminal by the law outside of Hong Kong, meaning that if the, you are a journalist or professors or whoever, uh, you blog about China and criticize the communist government, for example, uh, or supporting Taiwan independence, for example, uh, when you're writing your blog in the U.S., for example, then uh, according to the law that you are you are criminal. Um, and uh, meaning that if uh, you are uh, in transit uh, via Hong Kong, uh, for example, or in transit to any place within having an extradition arrangement with Hong Kong, that you will be at risk of being arrested for violating the law. Uh, so it is it is dangerous. It is why uh, Canada, Australia, a lot of countries that have extradition uh, arrangement with Hong Kong announced that they are not, they are suspending or even cancelling the ex- extradition treaty with Hong Kong because of this. Uh, because this law basically uh, put uh, everybody in the world uh, uh, under jurisdiction uh, of, of this law. And, and it is surprising because even mainland Chinese law doesn't have these kind of articles. Um, except that, that, that if you are a lone resident or lone citizen of China, uh, you need to commit crime within mainland China to be indictable by Chinese law. And most of the time, they just expel you from the country rather than uh, try you in the court and imprison you unless you are doing some spying or, or other offenses that they think serious enough. But, but, but at least that, that you need to be caught committing the crime within um, the country. Uh, but now this national security law saying that that law uh, Hong Kong residents uh, can be charged for things that they do outside of Hong Kong, meaning anywhere in the world. Uh, so it is. It is radical. It is extreme, and it is making people worried. Uh, it opened kind of a gateway for them to arbitrarily arrest anybody who uh, in transit to Hong Kong or happen to be uh, uh, stopped by Hong Kong or even some places that have extradition arrangement with Hong Kong. So this is something that is actually uh, uh, very dangerous, and 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 people pay attention to it, even though they haven't act on it. But if they act on it, it will be if. Will be uh, explosive. Wow! Thank you for bringing that aspect of the law to light because I had not heard about that aspect. Yeah. You know, as you had yeah, stated, some 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 journalists find it out, and 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 it already invokes some discussions. And and I think we can remember that in June of 2019, millions of Hong Kongers took to the streets to protest an extradition bill, which was introduced into the legislature. Yeah. These mass protests forced the government to withdraw the extradition bill in its entirety. So how did this new national security law, which is much more far-reaching and restrictive to the autonomy of Hong Kong than the extradition bill had been, yeah. move so quickly into law you know, to be ratified? Yeah, I think it has something to do with the uh, style of governance of uh, Xi Jinping and uh, Chinese leaders nowadays that uh, uh, they they... They in of course in two thousand three they they want to have this uh, anti subversive law um, try to pass it in the Hong Kong legislature and it is a kind of a law that also outlaw opinions and speech and things, but uh, they back down with massive protests uh, and in two thousand nineteen the extradition law they also back down after massive protests, 
And uh, uh, many people expect that that is it. Uh, but the problem is that uh, it seems that uh, over Hong Kong and over all other kinds of issues that uh, the current Chinese leader is not the type that uh, back down easily. If they back down, that they will find opportunity to take major offensive to fight back uh, uh, with, 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 with far bigger ferocity. Uh, so it seems that it is the, the what and what what they are doing now that with these and the national security law that that actually is more draconian than extraditional and more draconian even than the uh, uh, anti-subversive law that they try but failed to pass in two thousand three. So they are taking a major offensive, uh, and of course that uh, it has major implication that uh, uh, there will be collateral damage to the Chinese economy. And as I said, that the Hong Kong's offshore financing. Uh, the center role will be eroded and which cannot be easily replaced by the, any financial center in mainland China. That uh, uh, So China is going to take a particular uh, damage, uh, but uh, it seems that the Beijing government is ready to take uh, the cost of doing this. And, and uh, so it is a very uh, uh, bad and troubling situation, but, uh, but we will see how it happened, how, how it unfolds. In terms of the implementation of the law, because uh, in the upcoming election in September, it seems that many democratic uh, candidates are not ready to back down. They are continuing to um, um, uh, dig in and uh, and continue to run for the seat uh, without putting their criticism of the Chinese government. So one test case about how serious they are going to implement the law is uh, the upcoming September election. Of legislative council in Hong Kong, and given the strong opposition to the extradition bill in twenty nineteen, and given you know how much more serious this new law is, you know why haven't we seen the same types of mass protests that we saw for the extradition law after this law has been passed? One uh, for one thing is that uh, after the series of mass protests last year, there's a lot of people around up and arrested, and some of them already imprisoned. Um, so they take it take some time for them to recover. Uh, at the same time, uh, they know that the situation is different now. Um, and uh, uh, some of the activities, uh, opposition activities might go underground like Taiwan in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, but more importantly is that uh, a lot of energies in the opposition are absorbed by the, by the planning and the preparation for the upcoming September legislative election. Um, so the, um, a lot of activists who used to be active in organizing protests and uh, and planning protests, and they are now uh, organizing and planning for the election um, and uh, to avoid disqualification of the candidates at the same time uh, standing their ground, uh, making their voice heard. And then we uh, know that uh, just past week that there, there's a Democratic candidate primary election uh, organized by uh, the activists. Uh, through online voting, and there's a surprising uh, uh, 600,000, more than 600,000 uh, voters vote in the primary. So it is a big showing for primary election that is not binding. Uh, so it is protest vote. It is the kind of a vote that you see pictures in international media seeing that uh, uh, despite the pandemics and, and the worry about the, the virus and things like that, people are lining up um, and waiting for hours and hours to vote in those uh, stations, uh, to 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 and and the result of the primary election is that uh, the, the many of the young uh, 
localist uh, confrontational uh, candidate to support the protests in uh, in the platform, uh, support the protests in two thousand nine, they 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 score big wins. Uh, so it is not a protest; it is not a confrontation on the street. But these kind of six hundred thousand people voting, uh, lining up for a long time voting, supporting all these. Uh, uh, candidates who are sympathetic or part of the protest last year is is a big show of the, the um, um, continuous support of the population uh, of the opposition and the resistance. So so I think the protests uh, won't die down easily. They just take another form, uh, uh, and and uh, a lot of energy is absorbed by the election. And we will we will tell uh, in more details and more clarity uh, with the vote. Uh, in September, and I would expect that uh, they will try very hard um, to make sure that their voice is heard in the election in the upcoming uh, September. So, Professor Hong, we have on one side we have the, na- the new national security law that China passed, and on the other side we have st- still lingering uh, sentiments from Hong Kongers that they really want to remain in the, uh, independent. So, I want to ask you about what does this new national security law mean for the one country, two systems framework that has been in place since 1997? Is the autonomy of Hong Kong truly gone, as many uh, commentators have suggested? Yeah. Uh, many people see it this way, uh, that uh, the law itself, the, the manner that it is passed and it is implemented and the content of the law did uh, say that uh, Hong Kong autonomy is over. Uh, but it is still leeway for people to fight back because uh, uh, it is also a matter of how serious they are going to implement the law. It is still a possibility that they make the law and then don't use it uh, and, and just uh, make it there. Uh, so that's, we, we already have example. For example, that last year in October, the Hong Kong government invoked uh, uh, an emergency power uh, that they inherit from the British government uh, in the colonial times, and again, and, and the British government rarely use it or never use it in the in the last two decades of its colonial rule. That is, the government can invoke this emergency power to make law by decree. Uh, so in October that uh, last year, the Chinese, uh, the Hong Kong government invoked this emergency power to to ban face mask. Uh, so at that time, uh, it uh, provoked international outrage and outrage among protesters. Uh, I think that it is serious, and 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 uh, and, and this this kind of a legislation by decree is a kind of a very uh, drastic, extreme thing to do for Hong Kong. And in the end, that this added the face mask ban uh, is not implemented. It's not enforceable simply because so many people are wearing face masks, and uh, because of the pandemics uh, starting early this year, that everybody wears face masks, and it is ridiculous if the police go out. And in the beginning, they try to like uh, pull pull uh, pull out people's face masks and arrest people for wearing face masks. But after a while, there's, there are tens of thousands of people wearing face masks. You can't arrest them all. And because of the pandemic, everybody non protesters are also wearing face masks, so it become unenforceable. And now that uh, it's become a joke and. And the government, even with the second wave, a new wave of uh, of the coronavirus uh, is spiking, and the government now uh, decree that everybody has to wear face masks. And if you don't wear face masks, and if you don't wear face masks, uh, properly, the police can charge you and fine you for several thousand dollars. So it's contradicting 
to this face mask ban. So, so the national security law potentially, of course, is much more serious, but it can be like that, that they, they pass the law and cause outrage and then they, they find that it's unenforceable and then it is forgotten. It is a possibility that it depends on how people fight back, uh, how the international star community react. If the fight back and the reaction is strong enough that this uh, law can be become uh, ineffective and unindependent. Um, and uh, so it is the, the good scenario, uh, but of course uh, uh, the, the situation may be somewhere in between. And the worst scenario is that people uh, uh, just become too afraid um, and then start to self-censor. Uh, if they start to self-censor, then the Chinese government achieve what they want to achieve without <coughs> actually implementing the law. It is the worst scenario. So. So there's still uncertainty about how the situation will unfold, uh, depending on the international reaction and the protesters' uh, pushback uh, uh, with regard to the implementation of the law. Professor, this past Tuesday, July 14th, President Trump signed an executive order ending the special trade relationship between the United States and Hong Kong. How will this affect Hong Kong as a business metropolis and the continued relationship between the United States and Hong Kong. Yeah, it, it, there will be the, a huge impact, uh, though we don't know the details yet because uh, the executive order has some details, but there's some things that leave that is left bang, blank, and uh, the State Department has 90 days to uh, draft up uh, more detailed uh, policy uh, in the reaction to this. Uh, 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 to this uh, declaration uh, to end a special treatment of Hong Kong. Definitely that um, it will affect, uh, it already affect uh, the Hong Kong role as a gateway for China to get access to sensitive technology with uh, U.S. components. That's because it's uh, uh, back in May that the Trump already signed an executive order uh, uh, that to end the Hong Kong exemption from the U.S export control regime uh, in light of Hong Kong laws of autonomy. It is something that U.S. want to do it anyway. And um, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the national security law that created a great uh, reason, legitimate reason for the U.S. to do it immediately. Because everybody know that uh, U.S. and Hong, uh, U.S. and China is in a kind of a tech war over Huawei, over 5G, uh, over the, the global positioning system, the satellite things that, uh, and China has been developing this high tech that can be used for military. Um, and uh, China's strategy is to get access to the U.S. technology to to do this technology transfer, and and from a U.S. perspective, it is stealing, it is technological theft. And Hong Kong has been a big important uh, channel for China to get access to this technology because a lot of this technology and equipment, software, with US, not necessarily made in the U.S., but with U.S. components, are put under export control regime that Chinese companies in mainland China cannot import it or they can import it but need to have been heavily regulated and, and licensed by the U.S. government. Uh, but Hong Kong is exempt from this export control regime. So um, for a long time, the Chinese uh, companies and Chinese government has setting up labs with Hong Kong universities and setting up subsidiary uh, in Hong Kong, which is outside this export control ban to import these components and equipments and software to get access to to this technology. And so, so Hong Kong, uh, many not many people notice that. 
uh, that Hong Kong is a very important part of uh, Chinese uh, technological ambition, uh, both civilian and military technology. Uh, and and U.S. with its escalating tension with China, want to plug this loophole and then close this back door for China for a long time. And now the national security law created good opportunity for U.S. to just do this. And and it is what uh, the U.S. has done uh, as a reaction to the national security law. There's some other thing. Um, um, that U.S. can do to Hong Kong that will cause a quick damage to Hong Kong economy and Chinese economy, but the U.S. has not done it yet. That is, uh, uh, Hong Kong has a free access to the U.S. dollar, and many Chinese companies uh, get a hold of U.S. dollars through uh, borrowing in U.S. dollars uh, through the banking system in Hong Kong. Uh, so uh, we read from the report that early this week and last week that actually U.S. has been considering cutting off Hong Kong access to U.S. dollars. In such case that it will be the death new to the Hong Kong financial center status. And a lot of Chinese companies will be cut off from US dollar. It will be a big blow to their global ambition because uh, uh, the Chinese currency is not yet freely convertible and internationalized. So that Chinese business lead US dollar to do business in the world. Uh, so the Trump administration actually think about it as part of the package to respond to the national security law. But as it turned out that they dropped the idea so meaning that they, they have been doing a lot on technology, uh, but not yet a lot on the U.S. dollar and finance. Uh, so meaning that uh, U.S. is not going all the way to the extreme, the most extreme options. Uh, they they we, uh, uh, leave some leeway um, for further interaction and even negotiation with China over Hong Kong. So it is what, what, what the executive order uh, tells us this week. And Professor, I've seen some arguments in addition in, in different opinion pieces saying that ending the special relationship with Hong Kong between the United States and Hong Kong only hurts the people of Hong Kong themselves. Is do you think there's truth to that, or do you think that this was the correct move by the Trump administration to end the special relationship at this point? There are different um, opinions on it. Uh, on the U.S. side, actually, it's not only the Trump administration, that it is bipartisan, as the Hong Kong Autonomy Act uh, that passed Congress actually unanimously, uh, both in Senate and in, uh, in the House of Representatives, and is sponsored by both Democrats, including one of our uh, Democratic uh, uh, senators in Maryland, as co-sponsoring the bill. Um, and... Um, uh, so it is the, to 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 uh, uh, penalize China and the Hong Kong government over this national security law is bipartisan, and um, it will it will definitely hurt Hong Kong people. But it, the Hong Kong people is not one. There's many different kinds of Hong Kong people, and, and and who are being hurt and who are going to benefit to depend on who you ask. Uh, definitely for high tech and for finance. Uh, uh, sanctions on that you are definitely going to hurt a lot of uh, Chinese business and Chinese companies and Chinese elite who have their wealth, who have uh, their business in Hong Kong and using Hong Kong as a as a channel to get access to important technology for their technological ambition. So definitely hurt these people. But for ordinary people and and in Hong Kong, there's a, a conception that actually this kind of a Hong Kong status as an offshore financial center and technological hub for Chinese company. Uh, only hurt Hong Kong ordinary people because it drive up the rent and drive up the asset price, and all the all the all the best jobs in those sectors uh, actually uh, uh, is taken 
uh, by foreigners or mainland Chinese uh, nationals uh, rather than local Hong Kongs. And, and at the same time, ordinary Hong Kong people need to suffer from the high rent and high cost of living. And the employments in, in other sectors and surveys, education and, and all other sectors become more and more unstable and the pay level increase. So there was this kind of inequality as a consequence of Hong Kong's role as a Chinese offshore financial center and technological hub. And then, so according to, to many study, and actually the opinion pool uh, done by the credible journalistic organization and uh, academic organization find that actually more than 50% of Hong Kong people support um, U.S. sanctions on Hong Kong and ending Hong Kong special status. Um, one reason, I think, is that uh, people say that this thing that this special status uh, of Hong Kong, uh, that U.S. Uh, uh, grant to Hong Kong, only benefits the elite. Um, and it is, it is actually the root of the uh, vast and increasing inequality in Hong Kong. And if this kind of uh, special status is ended, actually the, the cost of living in Hong Kong might come down. The housing price, rent price in Hong Kong might come down. And uh, and uh, Hong Kongs might be seeing a kind of a, a freeing up of space for other kind of business rather than high tech and finance. Uh, so it is one possibility. So uh, and at the same time, this uh, Trump administration and the Congress uh, reaction to the national security law also uh, uh, include um, components that uh, lead, uh, that is to granting political asylum to people in Hong Kong persecuted by the national security law and uh, many other countries, including. The UK, Australia, and also Taiwan also uh, considering and 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 just seriously law that allow Hong Kong people to uh, to seek sanctuary sanctuary um, uh, sanctuary in their country to escape from the prosecution by the law. So this is the the, the part that is going to benefit Hong Kong people. They might not leave uh, to take the offer of political asylum or sanctuary, but. Uh, at least that they can have a peace of mind that if something bad happened to them, that they can escape to somewhere. So, so that part is important and also important to help keep uh, the resistance and the movement and the protests in Hong Kong alive um, and, and, and uh, provide a kind of a peace of mind for people who try to even just want to continue to do business in Hong Kong. Thank you for that answer, Professor Hong. Um... In your opinion, Professor, to wrap up the podcast, in your opinion, what does the future of Hong Kong look like? Will Hong Kong continue to be noticeably differently politically, economically, and socially from the rest of China? And how will the popular and democratic resistance impact yeah. the implementation of this national security law in the future? It uh, it depends, I would say, that many people already say declare that Hong Kong is dead and it is the end game and uh, it, it can well be. But it is not certain yet. Uh, it depends on how Hong Kong people and the international community react and fight back to this. Uh, there's a declaration of the death of Hong Kong uh, many times uh, before. In, 1997, in 1984, when the sign of this joint declaration and handover is uh, set. In 1997, uh, when, um, uh, when handover happened. And, and then many times the people declared that Hong Kong is deaf. But Hong Kong defy. Uh, this prediction and uh, live on and fight on and continue to be ribbon. So as I said, this law is very bad and is very oppressive. And uh, but the problem is that uh, its implementation uh, is still uncertain. 
So uh, if the international reaction is strong enough and the people in Hong Kong and business in Hong Kong uh, fight back hard enough, that it is still a possibility that the law is not seriously implemented, just becomes something that's unenforceable and then left aside and Hong Kong maintain its freedom. And uh, uh, though under bigger shadow of, of Beijing, definitely. But but so it all depends on how people uh, fight on and, and, and uh, chart their way uh, to maintain the freedom, so it is uh, too early to to declare the death of Hong Kong, and and uh, but I would say uh, the stake cannot be higher, uh, particularly that Hong Kong issue is not only a Hong Kong issue, and it is implicated with the escalating U.S. China uh, tension or even rivalry, uh, and um, uh, uh, and not only U.S. and China, but also China when marked with other countries in in Asia, in Europe, and over all other kind of issues, over Taiwan, over South China Sea, and all these issues are, are all linked up together. So the, the future of Hong Kong is as uncertain as the future of the world, um, and we are living in a in a in a some in some, from some perspective a troubling times of uncertainty and insecurity, but also also an interesting time, meaning that there's a lot of different possibilities. Uh, it is uh, up for us to 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 shape. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Professor Hong. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins P-O-F-A on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA news and updates. We'll see you next time.